Take your Bibles with me and turn to back to Psalm 112. If at the end of the sermon you say to yourself or your spouse, boy, I wish I would have heard from Brother Rick or Brother Dennis, I'm, not, I'm right there with you. But uh, the Lord gives grace for uh, emergencies such as these. Uh, if you've been in my uh, Sunday school class or the equipped classes that I've taught over the years, you know that I love the Psalms. I, I hold them highly. I read them every day, and they are very instructive. They are not doctrinally shallow. I think they're most doctrinal. And uh, we can draw many, many things about God and what he is doing from them. Uh, this psalm, Psalm 112, came at a special challenging time in our family and our ministry. We had taken a stand for the gospel and inadvertently made some enemies within the church. And sometimes that's how it works. And so it, going to church became complicated. We're now we're there to worship. We're, we're, we want to serve and worship the Lord and do all the things that we do and enjoy that. And it became a fearful thing. It became a, a, not a loathsome thing, but a, a heavy and a weighty thing. And in reading the Psalms, I came across Psalm 112. And look at verses 7 and 8. These just leapt off the page. And in my reading Bible at home, they're, they're underlined. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his enemies. And uh, I remember just saying, you know, meeting together in our family devotions, I want a heart like that. I want a heart that doesn't feel fear or has fear, but sets it aside knowing that God and his grace and his providence are better. And so we memorize the psalm as a family and, and have and have repeatedly put it, committed it to memory and reminded ourselves of its truth. And the psalm really helped us to, number one, face our, face our fears. Uh, when we set our fears higher than Christ, then everything becomes colluded and we don't see clearly and we make bad decisions based on fear rather than faith. Uh, it helped us also find a sweeter savior, knowing that Christ ministered to us in a moment where we needed him and he did things that were exceptionally wonderful, as he always does. And it also taught us to follow his leading, to rest in his provision, just like we find God's people doing from Genesis through Revelation. So let's take a moment to reread it. I know John read it, but just for the sake of getting it right there in front of us, let's read it again. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the, up, for, the, for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with a man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. 
The form of this psalm is an acrostic. You don't see that in English, but in Hebrew it follows an A, B, C kind of a pattern. The message of the psalm, the plain message of the psalm, is it's a portrait of the Christian life, both of its essence, what it looks like from the outside, and, and it, in its action, what it does, what the Christian life does, what it executes. And so the psalmist describes the Christian life as the one who fears the Lord, delighting in obeying his commands, godly and righteous in his actions, generous, compassionate, people of high moral integrity. They show their trust in the Lord and they are confident and have expectation and hope. They are hospitable and generous givers. Such an outstanding Christian life will produce good fruit, right? Jesus says, we reap what we sow. And we always, we always harvest the, thing, the kind of seeds that we sow. Galatians chapter 6 says, those who sow to the Spirit will reap eternal life. But those who sow seeds to please their sinful nature will die. And so for all of us, this is either good news or bad news. And our lives aren't going to lie as if we can live for the world now and somehow God in his grace and his love for us is going to change that and we can profit somehow from our wasted living. No, he says further in Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And so if we orient our lives towards the kind of sowing, the kind of righteous living that we find here in Psalm 112, we can also conclude that the Lord will add blessing to us as he describes here. Have we stopped to examine our lives recently? How truly Christian are our lives? One of the best ways to do this is just to stop, pause, and uh, check our fruit. Is my life producing the kinds of gospel characteristics that flow out of this psalm? If you're a note taker, I'll give you an outline. Number one, the godly life is a glimpse of God. Why doesn't God just bring everybody to heaven the moment they're saved? Well, he wants to have lights in the world that mirror and image his greatness and his glory. And that's why he leaves us to display that glory. And, and Psalm 112 gives us the godly life as a glimpse of God. Second, the Christian life is not an algorithm or an autopilot as if we can just make a decision and then it sticks forever and we end up becoming the kind of Christian we imagine ourselves to be. Christian living is not an algorithm. Number three, the Christian life or the Christian living is not a means to our own ends, as if we can treat God as a genie and say, well, if I just obey a set of rules and commands, I'll, I'll get these kinds of things that he promises in the psalm. I don't think that's a right conclusion based on what the psalm says and the rest of Scripture. And finally, number four, God brings glory to himself by distinguishing distinguishing his people from the wicked. The analogy of light versus darkness, salt and unsalt, fresh water and bitter. All right, so firstly, the godly life is a glimpse of God. What does the godly Christian life show us or reveal to us? It reveals not merely the changed creature, but the kind of creator who brought gracious change to the heart of one of his own prior enemies. The reality was all of us were enemies and fallen short of God's glory and were rebels and deep, treacherous sinners. And Pastor Rick from Romans 3 has made this quite clear. God has promised this kind of life, this changed life that comes from his spirit through the word. All the way back in Genesis 3, the promise of Messiah. 
And from the garden on, we see God changing idolaters and pagan sinners into faithful saints from Abel and Noah to Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Rahab, Samuel, David, Hezekiah. All of them had fallen short. All had black marks and long histories of rebelliousness. But God is not limited by those things. He changes us from glory into glory. Have you ever wondered how children develop an image of God in their hearts? Does it come through teaching or training or videos or listening or by imagination? You know where they're going to get their view of God? You, mom and dad. They grow up and simply reflect the things that they have seen mom and dad do. And so parenting becomes very, very important in transmitting a godly idea of what God is like. The godly life is so attractive and comforting and inviting. And when children see from the lives of mom and dad and and godly grandfathers and grandmothers a godly life, a life focused on making Christ supreme in every asset, every facet, it it projects a proper and right image of God to those children. And on the contrary, how tragic it is when a father or mother intentionally or unintentionally through neglect mislead their children and follow their own selfish desires and pursuits and ends. So in applying this first truth we see from Psalm 112, how well does my life, how well do our lives image Christ and the Christian life? Can others see Christ clearly by the way that we live? If we perceive that they might have a question then it's certainly cause for reflection. Second, Christian living is is not an algorithm. It's not an autopilot. Rather, Christian living is a practiced habit. It's an intentional, disciplined effort that requires your daily involvement. Didn't we at one point led to the Lord and just, hey, we're going to make a decision and I'm going to be a Christian and the rest of my life is going to be easy and I'm going to grow up to be my, like my godly Christian grandmother and grandfather. And then we lived a week and then a month and then a couple of years later. And then, boy, it's, that, this, this flesh still lives. I'm, I'm told to put it to death, but it still lives. And I've got to fight against it. And the, the Christian life is more of a fight against evil and a fight for good than it is just making a decision and just trusting that that decision will carry me forward. Some might say, well, this psalm represents a you know, cause and effect. Look at verse 2. Godly people, they'll be blessed. Godly people will be wealthy. Verse 3, we could draw all these conclusions. Is it rational to say, well, if I just follow God's list of rules and obey him, then God is going to bring all of these things in my life? I would ask that to David or to Job or to Paul, who didn't experience certainly all of these things. I don't think that the the intent of the psalmist, that is the intent of the psalmist in order that it fits with the greater corpus of Scripture. We should not think Christianity is merely obeying a set of rules that produce certain outcomes that are beneficial to us so that they can make our lives better. No, the Christian life realizes from verse 1, how joyful are those who fear the Lord and delight in obeying His commands, that these things are not mere human obedience to a legal code but a willful internal submission that resulted from a change of heart that we could not do on our own. 
It was a result of God's Spirit doing a work that only He could do between our shoulders. Once we were willful sinners and deliberate lawbreakers and rebellious towards God in every part of our being, and yet when He regenerated our hearts and made us alive, and more specifically made them alive unto Him, not the law, not to His expectations, but to Him and His glory and His grace, He saved us for Himself, not merely saved us from His wrath, or saving us from his hell, from hell, but to him and for him. And there's no Christian algorithm that makes everything hunky-dory. Look at verse 8. What is the reason for this joy and this blessing? What is the reason for this favor? Is it our obedience? Is it our keeping a code? Is it merely a, the, the result of a cause-effect relationship? I don't think that's what the psalmist is saying. His heart is steady he will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. What is it about us and our hearts that God, through faith, through his word, changes us so that we can rest in him and trust him? And he changes our hearts so that our desires aren't merely for things that we used to enjoy, but a new set of values, a new set of principles, a new course heading. And when we go to him and make our lives mostly about him, all this other stuff kind of works its way out, works itself together. Thirdly, the godly life or the Christian life is not a means to an end. Think of a, of a genie, right? If you found a, a lamp or a bottle and you rub it and all of a sudden this genie pops out and says, you know, I'm going to give you three gifts, three wishes. God is not a means to our own end. In other words, we don't go to him and shouldn't go to him asking him for all the blessings and enjoy the blessings more than we enjoy him as a person. Rather, the godly life is a means to the greatest end of all things, which is God, which is Jesus Christ, and our souls finding joy and satisfaction at him. Look back through the psalm and look at all the benefits of the godly life that he gives us. Verse 1, joy. It's the universal basic desire of every human being wants to be happy. And where is that happiness found? Not in the blessings that the Creator gives, but in the Creator Himself. Look at verse 2, successful children. Verse 3, abundant wealth. Verse 4, divine goodness, divine good. Verse 6, immunity to evil. Verse 7, immunity to fear and bad news. Just think of if your faith was so strong in the Creator that when you heard bad news, it didn't rattle you. You didn't feel anything but, well, I'm anxious to see what God is going to do in the future. I want that kind of faith. Verse 9, influence and honor. Verse 10, victory over one's enemies. It would be wrong for us to say then, if I come to God and just simply obey Him and do all the things that I'm supposed to do, my life is just pretty lousy right now, but I, if I added a little bit more of Jesus, a little more religion, a little more obedience, look at all the good that I could get. And that would be using God as a means to an end. I don't think we should do that. God will not and cannot be a means to our own end as if we can live by some legal code and make demands of God's goodness so we can consume them on our lusts. How terribly proud and self-exalting such intentions are worthy of eternal hell. Rather, look at verse 7. What's the proper motivation? What motivates us to obey God's word? What motivates us to live by his precepts and make his law our delight as the psalmist commands? 
His heart is not afraid of bad news. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. It's a heart thing. And if we find ourselves to be struggling with heart, the direction and the orientation of our heart, what am I really hoping to get out of this life? What am I really hoping to do? Boy, I feel gypped that life hasn't given me what I really wanted. All of these things are causes for concern for us to stop and ask and question ourselves. What am I really hoping for out of this life? What am I, what am I really looking for? What am I really seeking? If it doesn't end up at Christ or if I'm somehow using him as a crutch to, to have a better life, then, boy, that, that seems pretty short-sighted. Whatever we imagine the Christian life to be, if a love for and a knowledge of the Savior isn't our supreme motivations, it's really no better than any other religion. Just think about it. Millions of people across the world go to church every Sunday or whatever their holy day is in hopes that by doing this A, B, C, and D, their lives will be made better. Well, how are we any different? Hopefully we're different because we realize that the aim of the Christian living is not merely the law or obedience to the law, but the person and work of Jesus Christ. That because he lived in a perfect way and has given and justified us and given us that perfect life, I'm complete in him. He's going to make right everything that's wrong with my life, partially right now, but fully, completely on that last day. Could we go for a second to Jeremiah chapter 9? Jeremiah chapter 9. We'll look at verses 23 and and 24 and read these in trying to enforce the, the scripture idea that we don't come to God with merely a set of wants. As, a, as we would a genie. But we come to God because we believe he is satisfying and he will satisfy us. And whatever trial or tribulation or suffering, he's sovereign over it. And there is a reason, there's a reason that we're in it and he has an outcome that he wants us to see and to follow. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, not, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We live in an age of global awareness and the news media and things that we consume visually, audibly, are really about these three things, right? Wisdom, might, and riches. They're all empty pursuits. They can't satisfy us because there's a place in our heart that God made that can only be satisfied with himself. And until we firstly receive that principle, then we'll always be fearful of things that we can't control. Lastly, number four, God brings glory to himself by distinguishing his people from the wicked. Notice the transition from verse one. Praise the Lord. How joyful are those who fear the Lord. And then verse 10. The wicked man sees and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. That's what God purposed to do before he even created the world. Just read Ephesians 1. He wanted to show 
everyone that he is supreme over salt and light, good and truth, and that good wins. And of all the people he created, he chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to be a great nation for himself, different, holy, set apart. And the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a story of God's glorious plan to love the world, accomplish redemption, and to redeem for himself a peculiar people. 1 Peter 2.9, but you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. I think this is one of our fighter verses. A holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. That's you if you're a Christian. He's called you from darkness to light, so live like it. Deuteronomy 14.2, for you are a holy people. Again, what does holy mean? It's just we, we say it all the time, but we really have a sense of what it means and what it demands. It's a difference. It's a difference. The person who looks weird to you, that's think of what the Christian should look like. The world around us should see and should notice our peculiarity, that there is something different. They might not know what it is or the reason why it exists, but they should be able to see it and notice it and say, ah, there's a person that's different from me or different from the norm. For you are holy people, Deuteronomy 14.2, to the Lord your God and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And there is evident the grand story of redemption for God to contrast his people against those who willingly reject them in their sin. Have you ever stopped to think about just in your devotions, in your private worship and meditation, Lord, thank you for not passing over me. Think of all the people who never had the gospel, who never had written scripture to trust in, and they did the very best they could and wound up in the lake of fire in hell. And God has surrounded us with books and libraries full of characteristics of him and knowledge of him and wisdom, and the Christian life compared to them is relatively easy. We know what we ought to do. And so the question becomes, why don't we do it? Our love isn't great enough. So God loves to display his glory to the world through the people he has saved. And is this not a warning to our church of worldliness? I don't need to tell you that it's become very trendy for churches to become like the world to reach the world. And the result is what? No church, just the world. Worldliness is sneaky, it's crafty, it's stealthy. It tempts us to lower our standards and to compromise our holiness and to eat just a little bite of the forbidden fruit. And so can I ask you, O oh Christian, has sin made your life any sweeter? Even once? Didn't it end up in bitterness and regret? And regret? Let's go back to Psalm 1 and we'll close here together. I'd say it's almost a parallel passage uh, in portraying the normal Christian life for the church. What does the Christian's life look like? What is its essence and what does it do? I'm sure many of you, like myself, have memorized this psalm a long time ago. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and his leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. That echoes what we find in Psalm 112, a prospering. God generously flows out his blessing to those who align their hearts with his. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. So a couple responses to that from us might be, well, I sure wish I would have lived a little better and lived a little bit more like this righteous man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. God doesn't accept you because of your righteousness, for he says clearly we have none. He accepts us because of Christ's righteousness, and if we're willing to turn away from our sin and trust in him and align our hearts with him and be obedient to him, he promises his blessing. Sometimes that blessing is physical. A lot of times and mostly it's spiritual, but it is there, and it is a promise, and God does not ignore his promise. If we find ourselves as Christians wondering, well, why isn't my life as joyful or as happy as I want it to be? It's because it's not focused probably on the right thing. Maybe we're coming to God for the blessings and the prosperity that we want, that he, that we realize that he can give us, but that thing or that set of realities that we're looking for are not God himself. If we make God supreme in our hearts, if we Look for him for our satisfaction and joy and delight. God does give us the desires of our heart. It might not be the thing that we want, but it's even more deep and more satisfying than anything that we can imagine. And though none of us probably walk in that reality every day, most of us, if we're a Christian, have tasted that reality. And the response for our hearts is, Number one, am I a Christian? Am I daily repenting? Am I daily trusting? Am I putting my heart and my trust in Jesus Christ? And if I find myself as a Christian to have fallen short and just, blah, why am I here? What am I doing? Why why don't I feel the joy and the experience of God's presence as I want? We have to self-reflect and ask, maybe there's some sin that is separating us and our fellowship from the Lord. I hope this is a challenge to you. Uh, perhaps take a pen and go through Psalm 112 this afternoon and just ask, is, uh, is my life characterized by this godly life? Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice in you and we thank you for inspiring to us the Psalms, the daily life experiences and thoughts and reflections of David and many others uh, who guide us for when life... Uh, doesn't seem right, doesn't seem as meaningful or as full or as enjoyable as we might have anticipated. Uh, remind us that in your presence is fullness of joy. In your, pre- ple- in your presence are pleasures forevermore. Remind us that the object and the aim of the Christian life is not merely obedience, but in the glorious and good Savior and living a life that is worthy and pleasing to him. Thank you so much for your kindness and goodness and unfailing love. 
you have met with us, so stir our hearts towards the obedient and thoughtful responses that you would have us make towards this scripture. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.